You are listening to WERU's show, Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents, Interviews with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. My guests today are Tom Burnett and Mike Ware. Both are lawyers and have advocated for the rights of farm workers for many years. Tom currently is in the main legislature from the town of Gardner. Mike works for Pine Tree Legal Assistance. Pine Tree provides legal services to uh, low-income people in Maine. We will be discussing some of their past work as well as their current work aimed at securing important rights for farm workers. Tom, uh, looking to see if you can remember uh, when you were really uh, drawn or maybe uh, were upset about um, the inequities in the United States. When did that? Inequities in general, as as opposed to just migrant farmers? No, not just farm workers, but, you know, really, I'm really trying to see, uh, you know, what, what, where, where did your sense of being an advocate perhaps start? Sure. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to be here today, Steve. I, I really appreciate it. I am pretty much a child of the 60s and many of the defining moments in my life uh, focused on the civil rights movement, um, literally watching the demonstrations, protests, and violence directed at African-Americans in the South, sitting at my kitchen table watching on a small black and white TV. I was drawn to uh, Dr. King. I was, um, you know, my earliest memory, really cogent memory, is the assassination of uh, John Kennedy when I was in the third grade. And I was then shocked when we lost his brother and we lost Dr. King. And I realized that people that fight for justice um, sometimes lose their lives. And that was remarkable to me, but demonstrated the need to work on issues of inequity, issues of poverty, issues of structural racism. uh, And that's influenced my entire life and professional career. Uh, Well, it's, it's, uh, Interesting that you could have been reading uh, what I might have written. Uh, I'm just a few years older, I think. But um, so uh, after that, uh, whether in college um, or elsewhere, where there in, in in college, um, I was drawn to the work of Cesar Chavez uh, and began to learn more about farm workers. I went to college in the Bronx, which is not a real agricultural area. And as I learned about Cesar and the the work of the UFW, I thought really only about places like California. Um, And it wasn't until I left law school that um, I went on an interview for a job with uh, Farm Worker Legal Services in the Hudson Valley of New York, that I learned that we had farm workers throughout the state of New York, and that it's, you know, New York is a, one of the largest agricultural producing states in the country. Um, and it was through that process that I learned that neighborhoods that I drove through when I was younger 
uh, housed farm workers, but you never saw where farm workers lived when you drove past the farms in New York. So, so what, what, what approximately what year would that have been that you started with farm workers? Uh, as, as professionally, it was 1980. I graduated law school in 1980, okay. and I was fortunate enough to uh, interview for the job at Farm Worker Legal Services in July of that year. And when you started that work, um, uh, what was it? What you expected, or was it something that was uh, that you hadn't seen before? Well, you know, it's funny. I started I started the work on the interview. Um, when I interviewed for the job, the first interview was a traditional interview about, you know, why do you, why do you want to work here? What do you want to do? Uh, but the second interview, which in, you know, lawyer parlance is the callback interview when they're serious about hiring you, uh, involved doing outreach, uh, going out to migrant labor camps in Orange County. And it was the first time I'd ever set foot in a migrant labor camp, even though it was less than 30 miles from where I grew up in Rockland County. And I remember vividly, uh, this is 41 years ago in the summer, going into a migrant labor camp in Pine, uh, Pine Island, New York, and I felt like I was stepping back a century. Uh, I saw overcrowded conditions, workers living in housing without indoor plumbing, uh, sometimes without running water, still using outhouses. I saw people of all ages. Uh, young children to elderly grandparents, and I could not believe what I was seeing in the year 1980, and I knew that this was unfair, unjust, and immoral, and I knew at that moment that I hoped that I would get the job, and I did, and I was able to work for and with farm workers in various capacities in various states for about nine years before moving to Maine. Um. So, so I have a, a question that I'm, I'm a little nervous about asking because um, I'm not sure what your answer is going to be. Uh, is it still possible in the United States and maybe even in Maine to uh, find housing that uh, bears some, some similarity to what you kind of saw many years ago? I think some things have improved, but I have been to labor camps in Maine over the, the 30 years, 30 plus years that I've lived here that I find deplorable and find inhumane. Uh, I think I mentioned to you in a conversation the other day, recently learned of a house in Gardner, Maine, where I live, the city of Gardner, that was housing between 35 to 50 forestry workers, temporary foreign H2B workers, uh, you know, packing that many people into a house with an array of bunk beds uh, and electrical wiring to serve that many people is fraught with danger. And that is in, you know, September of 2021. The problems persist. Um, well, the, the, the answer that I was worried I was going to hear came. Um, Mike, uh, when did you start thinking about uh, um, working on issues relating to um, human rights or social justice? Well, like Tom, I too am uh, a child of the 60s, 
although I have to I have to confess it it took me a little bit longer to um, to be able to focus uh, you know when I was in high school and college I I knew that I knew something was wrong and and when when Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King were assassinated um, it became it, it started to become clear that there was a lot of work that that needed to be done but what really brought it into very specific relief for me was um, I was in a sociology class one day at the University of Southern Maine, which is as it's known now. Back then, to, to give you an idea of how elderly I am, it was still called the University of Maine at Portland Gorham. And the um, uh, an organizer for the United Farm Workers Union, uh, the union begun by Cesar Chavez, as Tom mentioned, uh, came to the class that I was in, and I was. I was at that point in my life where I was sort of looking for a way to to roll my sleeves up and and get involved, and I was I was uh, uh, captivated basically by what by what the this organizer was telling us about how farm workers uh, were exploited and what all the problems were and their efforts to unionize and how uh, this was back in the days of the grape and lettuce boycotts and how those boycotts. Um, we're actually beginning to effect some real change uh, for the workers um, in in the union, and uh, one thing led to another. Um, and after I graduated from from college, um, I went to work full time for the UFW. Um, I was there for about three years. And very. And where was that? Well, when I started, I was I was working on um, the boycotts and. Those were, um, you know, in, in, at, at the height of the UFW's boycott organizing, there was an office um, of organizers in pretty much every major city in the United States. And I, I personally, I worked in Boston, uh, New York, Atlanta, Tampa, uh, and Miami. And eventually, um, um, a bunch of us were asked to come to California to train to become contract administrators. Uh, people who would be assigned to uh, work with uh, with groups of workers where the union had contracts in, you know, in processing grievances and making sure the employer lived up to the terms of the of the agreement and things like that. And one of the one of the very one of the one of the benefits of that, um, which has remained with me to this day, is that as part of that as part of the training for that job, um, the union um, taught me how to speak Spanish. Um, we did uh, several weeks of of, uh, train, of of lessons, um, as well as a three-week immersion trip to uh, northern Baja, California. And um, that's the, the Spanish that I'm able to speak today. I, I, I learned while I was working for the UFW, and that has come in very, very handy, to say the least, um, in the work that I do now. Um, after I worked for the union, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to ask, and, uh, when did you when did you come to... Uh, to Pine Tree Legal. I had, well, actually, I've been at Pine Tree twice. I was I came to Pine Tree for the first time uh, back in. Uh, let me think now. Get this right. Uh, back in 1987, um, and I um, stayed for a few months, um, but then went back to my old job in Florida because um, that was at that time. There was a legalization program, uh, a legalization law, 
that was uh, that was happening at that time. It was allowing farm workers in the United States to become uh, uh, legal residents in the United States. And um, uh, I had come to Maine. I, I started my my work with with uh, legal services and farmer for legal services in Florida. Came back to Maine for a few months, but then realized after talking to my friends in Florida that there was an overwhelming amount of work to do in assisting people with these immigration applications that I went back. And then I ended up staying in Florida until 1998 and came back to Pine Tree then, and I've been here ever since. Thank you. So could um, would either one of you or um, maybe even both in, uh, in just give a, a short summary about who Cesar Chavez was? There are uh, there certainly are uh, people listening uh, on this show right now who um, may never have heard of him, and because he, um, because we're talking about something that happened quite a bit of time ago. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, to um, me, we go ahead, Mike. You had a closer connection. Well, uh, uh, biographically, um, Cesar was uh, was born in Arizona. I don't remember his his date of birth, but he he grew up as a migrant farm worker himself, um, and was recruited um, into into doing community organizing that wasn't specifically focused at first on farm workers, um, but it was um, um, he was recruited by uh, a fellow by the name of Fred Ross who um, was a, a, a very well organized, a very well known organizer who originally trained with Saul Alinsky in Chicago. And uh, Fred was uh, organizing uh, a, a series of, of group community groups in and around um, Arizona and California, which were called community service organizations or CSOs. And he in, uh, was able to get Cesar involved in, in one of those. And from there, uh, um, that's where there were Caesar learned, began to learn his, um, his extraordinary organizing skills. And then eventually, um, um, struck out and formed, uh, what was originally called, um, the United Farm Workers U Organizing Committee or UFWAC, which later became the UFW. And, um, um, he, the, the UFW began as an official, officially, the, the official organizational uh, um, existence of the UFW began, I believe, in 1965. And, um, and, and can you um, bring it up to the, just to the, the, the boycott so that people understand that? Yep. And then yep. Some of the first organizing drives that the union got involved in were among uh, grape pickers in California. And um, there were very, uh, very strong efforts to, um, to, to organize those workers, which were successful. And the workers voted um, to, um, to have a union represent them, the UFW, but the growers uh, it refused. There was, there was a very flat and hard no from, from the grape growers. And, and, and that's when the first grape boycott began. The, un the union sent members sent farm workers and staff people out from California all over the United States and uh, and organized boycotts against against grapes. And, and, and I think one of the things that was so striking is that everybody knew about Cesar Chavez and um, 
and uh, and people stopped eating grapes. I mean, it was I, um, yeah. This isn't my field, but it was it was right. quite striking. Um, you are listening to Change Agents on WERUFM. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Tom Harnett and Mike Guare. Both guests are lawyers and have advocated for the rights of farm workers for many years. <clears throat> Tom currently is in the main legislature from the town of Gardner. Mike works from for Pine Tree Legal Assistance. Uh, Pine Tree provides legal services to uh, low-income people in Maine. Uh, we are discussing uh, some of their past work as well as some current work. Um, so, can, uh, and maybe uh, you both, I think, can be talking about this, but um, uh, can you give a sense of both how many uh, farm workers come into Maine over the course of a year and and, and then, uh, yeah, we'll start with there and then I want to move on to a, another issue. Well, you know, I, I have national numbers you know, and I'm not as solid on the numbers in Maine, but, you know, right now they're between two and a half to three million farm workers throughout the United States, 83% of whom identify as Hispanic, which has been a big change over time because it used to be traditionally um, black Americans uh, who were involved in farm work and 6% identify as indigenous. Um, and one of the things we know about all of that population is that their incomes are incredibly low. Um, over a third of farm workers live well below the poverty level, and that's generational poverty that has been exacerbated by state and federal laws that deprive farm workers of the legal protections regarding wages and overtime and the right to organize that Mike just talked about um, without fear of losing their jobs. Uh, but in terms of the numbers, uh, specifically in Maine, you know, we all see the, the Jamaican H-2A workers at our apple farms. We know of the folks that rake the blueberry fields and work in vegetable farms in Arista County, uh, but I'll leave it to Mike to give the, the hard numbers for Maine. Well, it's, I'll, I'll, I, can, I can do, I can answer that question sort of anecdotally, Steve. The, it, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to get accurate counts of, of migrant farm workers, especially in places like Maine, where folks are only in, are here in many cases only for a few weeks. But in terms of at least an approximation, we have probably and it's easiest to break this down by by crop. Most migrant workers in Maine work in a few different um, crops, and the the farthest south, um, which um, covers basically from York County up to uh, around Newport, um, is the uh, our apple orchards. There are probably between 100 to 150, maybe a little higher. Um, H-2A workers who come to Maine every year to harvest apples, almost all of them come from Jamaica. And when I say H-2A, what I'm talking about is that's, that is the, the number, the, you know, the, the, the number 
the, the, that is, is given to the kind of visa that those workers come to the United States with. An H-2A visa is granted to someone in another country to come to the United States to work temporarily in agriculture. Um, and the, um, the apple industry uses uh, almost exclusively H-2A workers from Jamaica. The, um, the, the next big crop is, as Tom mentioned, is, is blueberries, which, which is um, focused in the mid-coast to down-east area of the state. Um, that industry has seen an increasing amount of mechanization over the years. Um, most of the berries now are harvested by um, machines, and, but there still are uh, a significant number of hand rakers um, who come to, and when I say rake, that is the, the method by which uh, berries are, are harvested. There's a tool called the blueberry rake, which looks like a giant fork, which has about 80 tines on it, and the rake is, is, is swept through the blueberry bushes and, and picks off the berries, which fall into a little containment area and then are loaded into boxes from there. And there are uh, probably in the neighborhood, I'm just guessing here, uh, in the neighborhood of 500 to 700 hand rakers left in Maine. Um, we also have a large broccoli harvest in Arista County. There are two primary producers and they employ between them probably three to 400 workers. Many of those workers, most of them in fact, are H-2A workers, although those workers come from Mexico and in a few cases from Central America. Um, but one of the things that has happened over the last several years is that the wreath-making industry in Washington County has overtaken all the others um, as the primary employer of migrant workers in Maine. Uh, there was a big slowdown last year uh, because of COVID. The year before that, there were over a thousand workers uh, working in the wreath making industry in Maine, and we expect that there'll probably be something close to that this year. Wreath making starts in the middle of October and goes until uh, anywhere from the second week of December up until almost Christmas itself. <laughs> and those workers are um, a combination of Spanish speaking workers from various countries various countries, as well as Haitian workers who um, are based in Florida, uh, but who come to Maine uh, to work in reefs. And many Haitians also come to Maine to work in, in blueberries. And then after the blueberries are over, they go either back to Florida briefly or over to New York or Pennsylvania for apples, and then, go, and then come back to Maine for reefs beginning in October. Well, thank you for that. that, that um, uh, I've, I've, I've wanted to know that information that was uh, really useful. Um, um, maybe I'll start with this, Tom, with you. Um, but um, what, what are the what are the major uh, issues that uh, that you see uh, right now? That uh, I, I want to hold. I I, I want to wait on moving to anything that's currently in the legislature, we'll get back to that, but just um, uh, just generally, what are the most serious issues? Well, I, I think that there's a couple of things. Um, one, you have a workforce that has been deemed as essential workers. You know, they are providing one of the most important functions that you can in this country, which is to feed people. 
yet they operate under a system of laws, and I, I won't get into the legislation right now, but they operate under a legal system that was born in the 1930s out of New Deal legislation where fundamental rights were provided to all people who worked throughout the United States in terms of minimum wage laws, overtime laws, as Michael talked about, uh, the right to organize um, as a union, to uh, work collectively with your fellow employees to better the terms and conditions of your employment. Cesar Chavez was able to do that without legal protection uh, because he was such an incredible and effective organizer. But we, ha we cannot talk about the problems of the present without looking at the history that got us there. When those laws were enacted in the 1930s, and the two fundamental ones uh, are the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the minimum wage law, and the National Labor Relations Act, which is the right to organize, frankly. Two major groups were excluded from those laws. And those, those groups were people that worked in the fields for agriculture and domestics that worked in the house, in the home. Those were the two primary occupations performed by slaves in this country. And they were left out because of the color of their skin. So I, I think the primary problems are wages, the, the lack of a living wage, the lack of overtime protection, and the lack of an ability to improve the conditions of your employment. Because if you do, you can be fired. And when you're a migrant farm worker working thousands of miles from your home, oftentimes speaking a language other than English, the prospect of being fired from your job simply for asking for better conditions means that you will lose your job, you will lose your housing, and you will find yourself homeless, unemployed, thousands of miles from home. It is no wonder people don't take the chance to change that. And, and, and I want to really stress, we have to talk about structural and institutional racism. Because again, if we don't look back at our history, we don't understand our present. And I just want to read two quotes um, from Congress people talking about the Fair Labor Standards Act and the, and the National Labor Relations Act and why it should not apply to frankly people of color. Representative Edward Cox said that changing these laws would eliminate and allow for the disappearance of racial and social distinctions and throw into question the determination of the standards and customs which shall determine the relationship of our various groups in the South. He's talking about blacks versus white. Is this, Florida, from, is this from the 30s? This is from the 1930s. And I'll leave okay. one more, because I understand our time limitations, but Florida Representative James Mark Wilcox, and I quote, said, there has always been a difference in the wage scale of white and colored labor. Now, such a plan might work in some sections of the United States, but those of us who know the true situation know that it will just not work in the South. You cannot put the Negro and the white man on the same basis and get away with it. This was the perpetuation of slavery and the indentured servitude, indentured servitude, uh, in servitude that followed uh, the emancipation. Oh, it, it, it couldn't be more stark of racism. Um, 
how close has Congress in recent years come to uh, over uh, getting rid of the 1930 laws? One of the, the major changes was finally in the mid to late 70s, at least they equalized the minimum wage for farm workers. They used to have a lower minimum wage than all other employees. So that's been equalized, but they still don't have overtime. And the National Labor Relations Act has never been amended to include farm workers. And that is why you've seen the most significant progress has been done at the state level and why it is so important for states to act on this. You look at California, which has had a California Labor Relations Act applying to farm workers since the 1970s. You look at states like Colorado, who recently enacted a Bill of Rights for farm workers. The state of Washington, which recognized that farm workers being excluded from overtime is a constitutional violation in terms of equal protection. States like New York, states like Ohio, there are states all around the country that are recognizing that the history we have is rooted in racism. And unless we deconstruct those statutes and regulations, we do nothing more than perpetuate the decisions that were made in the 1800s and were placed into law in the 1930s. Hi. It's um, certainly notable that uh, in the list of states that have made strong changes that um, Maine wasn't one of them. And I think we'll be coming back to, to that uh, sometime soon. You are listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Tom Harnett and Mike Ware. Both guests are lawyers and have advocated for the rights of farm workers for many years. Uh, Tom currently is uh, in the Maine legislature from the town of Gardner. Mike works for Pine Tree Legal Assistance. Pine Tree provides legal services to low-income people in Maine. Uh, and we are in the midst of talking about uh, a variety of issues. Uh, both of you have done a lot of litigation. Uh, and uh, a lot of years, Tom was outside of the state, but some has been in the state. Um, uh, you know, uh, when I think of the, when I was uh, working with Tom uh, in the Attorney General's office on civil rights cases, um, uh, we we prevailed uh, in almost all of our cases. Um, Mike, is uh, do you go into to court expecting that you are going to going to prevail? I, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that question, Steve? Yeah, I was asking: is when you when you go into court, are you um, expecting that you are going to prevail and uh, have a, a judge or a jury um, uh, say that you have won this case? Yes. Um, although before I before I um, add to that answer, I would like to go back and um, and mention that. Um, Tom um, 
was responsible while he was uh, at the Attorney General's office in Maine for one of the most important cases that's ever been decided in Maine involving so can, workers. And, so and can, we, can, can we hold on uh, that for a second? Yes. I just want to make sure Tom doesn't forget to mention that. Yes, I, I'm, um, I'm about to mention but, it after this. Yeah. So. And we have somebody but, else who is yeah. very involved in that on this call. Right. <laughs> and, um, but in answer to your question, yes. Um, we, you know, most of the, when, when we have cases that we, um, that we, that we litigate um, against an employer, um, usually the violations are so clear that it's, the only question is not whether we're going to be able to prove that the violations occurred. The only question is um, how much we might be able to get in terms of damages for our for our clients. That's not. It's it's rarely a question of of whether. It's usually a question of how much. Um, and that's uh, just to just to address that point a little bit uh, very briefly. Um, you know the the problems that farm workers have are sort of a a, a confluence of, of different things. It's kind of like a perfect storm, and all of all of these different problems sort of feed on each other. One of the main ones is is as Tom was just described, the systematic exclusion of farm workers from from protective legislation that most other workers enjoy. Um, the there is a federal statute um, that does provide certain rights to farm workers. Um, it's called the, the Migrant and Seasonal Agricultural Worker Protection Act, um, and it provides for certain basic rights for farm workers and the, the right to, to sue if those, if those rights uh, and protections are violated. Um, but the, the maximum amount of money that a farm worker can obtain if, uh, is either actual damages, if they're out-of-pocket costs, or... Um, statutory damages um, of up to $500. Uh, that amount was put into the statute when it was first enacted in 1983 and has not been amended since. And if an employer knows that they can violate the law and they're only going to have to pay $500, that unfortunately creates a situation where very often it's less expensive for an employer to violate the law and pay, uh, the, and, you know, and pay out in litigation rather than obey the law in the first place. Um, but, um, um, you know, the, the, you know with that being said, um, we are always pretty sure of our, um, of our facts when we go to court. We yes. expect that we, yeah. Well, that is, that is really good news, um, except for the low level of compensation. Um, so uh, I want to turn uh, to what Mike um, uh was talking about, um, which was uh, a lawsuit against um, a the largest uh, brown egg producer in in the Northeast, if not the U.S., the Costa Egg Farms. So, can can you talk about um, about that case? This to me, Steve? Yes, Tom. Thank you. And, you know, let's, so everybody knows uh, the, the lead counsel on this case was Steve Wessler. Uh, I worked with Steve Wessler uh, to address the conditions at DeCoster Egg Farms, and it was the most significant case that I've worked on in my life. DeCoster Egg Farms, as Steve mentioned, the largest eggs, I believe, in the country and possibly the world. 
Uh, and we learned early on that he had um, many, many workers living in a trailer park in Turner, Maine. Uh, and at the entrance to that trailer park was a very large sign with very large letters saying no visitors allowed. Visitors will be considered trespassers. I may be paraphrased phrasing. Anyone who is not an employee must report to the office before entering this trailer park. And there were a lot of brave people that ignored that sign. Uh, they were ministers, healthcare workers, social workers, advocates who wanted to talk to these farm workers because they knew that their lives were in many cases miserable. When those people entered the trailer park, the police were called, the sheriff was called. Some people were threatened with arrest. Some people were threatened with physical violence. Um, Pine Tree Legal Services Farm Worker Unit brought that to the attention of, to, of me, to me in the Attorney General's office and Steve and I. Uh, eventually filed a civil rights lawsuit uh, saying that, no, the, the housing is the employee's housing, not the employer's, and they have the right, the employees have the right to determine who visits them and who does not. But before we brought that lawsuit, we both spent a lot of time working with the farm workers. And, and I think it's important to remember, you know, we can talk about laws and statutes and regulations, but we're really talking about human beings. We both went out, Steve and I, to that labor camp dozens of times and remember the faces of the people who were so afraid to talk because they thought if they did, they would lose their jobs and lose the ability to send income home to their families in Mexico. Uh, there was one night in particular, I was out with a, uh, an attorney from Pine Tree we were in a trailer that housed over 20 people. They slept in ships. And we were talking to workers about the sign and why we thought it was illegal. And there was one worker uh, sort of playing watch at the window. He was looking out, looking out. And all of a sudden, he saw the foreman coming. Um, and this was somebody who had threatened visitors to the trailer park. And in broken English, he started to yell, El Jefe, El Jefe the boss is coming. And the workers shoved gently myself and Cesar into the closet and said, if they know you're here, you might be arrested and we will lose our jobs. And uh, the attorney and myself were in that closet for probably five minutes. And I remember just when we got out, the look of fear and panic on the worker's face. And I knew that we got to go home. And that was true when I worked in New York. I was able, was able to leave the migrant labor camp and go home to the safety of my house. These workers don't have that right. And fortunately, uh, the main superior court and the main law court recognized that this practice was a violation of their civil rights and took that sign down. And the housing was open to ministers, again, doctors, social workers to try to help these workers a huge victory. But with farm workers, it's often you win the battle, but you don't win the war because the underlying laws just treat them as less than, less valued, less deserving. So you can have victories, but I want to change, I want to change the portrait. I don't want to just paint certain parts of the picture. Thank you. Um... Mike, um, did, did the case, uh, the victory in this 
trial court and the state uh, Supreme Court. Um, uh, was that important for other cases in Maine and was it important for uh, advocates in other states? Well, it's, it's, it's crucially important um, here in Maine. Um, it basically is um, the reason why we, uh, why I and other advocates and service providers are able to talk to farm workers in the first place, and in many cases even at all. Um, the, um, the 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 case basically says that farm workers who live in employer-provided housing are tenants, just like any other tenant in Maine, and have the same rights that other tenants have, including the right to receive guests. And visitors, and then if if that if, you know if that rule of law had not been made clear by the law court, um, we would still not have uh, the right to uh, to go onto a property that was owned by an employer to talk to workers. And of course, that means that um, all the other cases that we have been able to do and all the other problems that we have been able to address, we were able to find out about because we had the ability. Uh, the workers had the ability to have us, to receive us, and and speak to us. And it also has national importance because there is, um, as as some of our listeners may know, uh, in the last term, one of the decisions that the Supreme Court made was in a case that arose in California involving a state law in California that gave union organizers the right to uh, enter onto employer property for the purpose of organizing. Uh, that Imposing that responsibility on the owner uh, was considered to be a taking of property under the Constitution, which uh, requires uh, that, it, if, that either it can't be done or there has to be payment um, for the taking. And therefore, the statute uh, or the law in California that allowed union organizers to enter the property without permission uh, was struck down. And that is a concern for the access ability of uh, advocates all over the country to be able to, to talk to workers. There's a great deal of concern uh, about whether that, uh, that ruling from the California case is going to extend and be applied elsewhere. And we are very hopeful that one of the, one of the, that because our case here in Maine turns on a different principle that we will not lose our right to talk to workers. And what I mean by that is that uh, the Zacosta case uh, depends upon the rights of the workers as tenants to receive guests. It's not an imposition uh, by the government on the employer to, to, uh, to allow access whether they like it or not. And those, those two things um, are, are, we hope, different enough that the Supreme Court case will not affect the right of access in places like Maine and some other states. I, I have to confess I don't know which ones, but I do know that there are other states where the right of access um, is basically the right of workers as tenants to receive visitors. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I have this um, memory, and I don't know, Tom, if we did this together, but um, driving out to Turner uh, and uh, saw for the first time that sign was down. Uh, it was uh, a 
deeply satisfying and emotional moment. It, it, it was. And, and, you know, for a while, farm workers were in the news. Uh, and there was actually legislation enacted that allowed farm workers at a farm that produced over X number of laying hens to organize for the purposes of collective bargaining. That statute, unfortunately, pretty much only applied to DeCoster, but it was enacted because people were outraged at the conditions that these folks were living under and realized that it was fundamentally unfair. Sadly, that law was subsequently repealed when Land of Lakes purchased DeCoster egg farms because you should never let a good law get in the way of a corporate takeover. Um, but for a while, farm workers, some farm workers in Maine had the right to organize, but today none of them have the right to do so without the risk of being fired. But seeing that sign down, that, that was a victory. And it was a victory for the people that lived there and had the courage to fight for us and to testify in that case. So let's talk about um, what, what the, the major issues are right now. Um, uh, uh, what is in the legislature that, um, that we should know about and uh, uh, what's its status? Sure. Um, well, you know, for me, one of the, the, the things I learned when I worked for farm workers in New York and then subsequently in Maine is that farm workers never have a seat at the table when the laws are written. Um, their voice is never heard. They don't vote for elected local elected officials. Uh, so I was I promised my clients in New York and those that I worked for in Maine that if I were ever in a position such as being in the legislature, I would fight for them. And I fought for them in two distinct areas. One, and we've talked about both. Uh, one was LD 1022, which would have made farm workers employees under state law, thus guaranteeing them the state minimum wage, which is much higher than the federal minimum wage, and also guarantee them the right to overtime. The first time I introduced that, I couldn't even get it out of committee. This session, it came out of committee with an ought to pass recommendation but unfortunately failed in both the House and the Senate. Um, even the Democratic majority did not support this bill. The other bill that I had was LD-151, which is to protect farm workers in the same way that all workers are protected if they want to engage in concerted activity. That doesn't mean necessarily just forming a union. It means two or more employees, employees talking to their employer about maybe getting better wages two or more employees talking about dangerous conditions that they see being able to talk to their employer to change them, or one employee speaking on behalf of another employee to raise issues of concern that he or she might have. Right now, under Maine law, if you do that as a farm worker, you can be fired, period. That's not moral, that's not right, that's not just, but it is legal. I think that needs to change. That bill, LD 151, passed through the House, passed through the Senate on the last day that we were in session and right now sits on Governor Mills' desk. It has not been signed. It has not been vetoed. Um, I am hopeful that the law will go into effect without her signature when we return in January. 
but I would also ask people that are concerned about morality and, and the rights of workers who have been historically treated as less than to let the administration know that this is an important bill. This is a fundamental right that all workers have except for farm workers. Why is that? Is it the color of their skin? Is it the language they speak? Or is it frankly that we don't consider the people who put the food on our table to have the same rights as everyone else in this country? So that's the most, that's the only piece of legislation that I have alive right now. And um, any support that I could receive on that would be greatly appreciated and not for me as much as for the workers whose lives that could change. Um, Mike, uh, your thoughts on, on either um, this piece of legislation or on legislation that uh, you hope will come perhaps uh, in the next year? Well, I, I, you know, I agree 101% with everything that Tom said. Um, the, um, you know, the exclusion of farm workers from uh, overtime protections uh, is, you know, is, you know, is was born out of a, a, you know, a sad chapter in our country's um, sometimes racist history. And there is no remaining justification for paying farm workers differently and, and on a lower basis than other workers. Um, and I can also say that that um, Tom did not overemphasize the importance of um, the bill that sits on the governor's desk right now. I have had many experiences in my professional life talking to workers who uh, who have approached me about a problem that they're having, which uh, and sometimes problems that folks have, which uh, and sometimes very serious problems, don't uh, fall within the definitions of one of the few statutes or one of the few laws that do protect farm workers. Um, uh, it's something you know. So there are many things that happen which are are not discrimination and which do not violate the the statute that I was talking about earlier, the, the Agricultural Worker Protection Act, which provide some protections to farm workers. There are very often things that happen outside the scope of, of any applicable law, and the workers want to know what they can do about it. And unfortunately, the advice that I have had to give is the you know the natural, normal, logical way that you know that we would that we should be able to deal with this the way is the way that other workers can deal with this, and that is to simply go and talk to the boss about it. Um, and you can do that. But you must understand that if you do that and you go and talk to the boss about some about something that's that, that's going on and the boss decides to fire you instead of deal with the situation, I won't be able to help you. And as you can imagine, um, that usually uh, is the end of it. Um, workers, uh, farm workers uh, in, you know, in, in living as they do at the very bottom of our socioeconomic structure, uh, cannot afford to lose employment when they have it, and um, they will. They are forced to put up with conditions that, you know, that 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 boggle the mind at times in order to in order to survive. And um, you know, this bill would you know would solve one of the many problems that farm workers have. They would at least have the right to be able to talk to each other and talk to their employer. Um, in a 
and not and not and not get fired for having the temerity to raise an issue with their employer. Thank you. Um, you know, hearing both of you um, talk about this bill and uh, and other things you've described, um, you, you, both of you have spent the, the better part of your your work life focusing on the, these issues and some of the issues are it's just striking that it has not changed how do you keep going does it uh does it ever for either of you get to the point in saying um uh, it's just the system's just not working uh, i need a timeout either one of you well um i, I think that for me the the secret to being able to to go on is that you have to learn draw your sustenance from the victories, from the good things that happen. Um, because, you know, it is not all doom and gloom. There have been, there have been successes, the DeCoster case that we talked about. Um, and Tom has, um, and, you know, as a result of Tom's effort in the legislature, the high watermark for protective legislation uh, for farm workers is now much higher than it was even in the last session. Um, and, I and if you can just do this in a minute, because we're, um, uh, I want to turn the time because we're running out of time, but okay. just go ahead. Well, yeah, then the, again, you know, the, you know, you, 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 you know, you take, you take strength and you take, uh, you know, the, and you, and you take this, the, what you need to go on from the, the good things that happen. They, there, you know, there are maybe as many of those as there should be, but they do happen once in a while, and that's that's you know it's important to focus on those as well as the problems. Um, Tom, thank you, Steve, and and thank you, Mike. Um, you, you know, as Mike just said, it's not all doom and gloom, and I, I want to just go back 41 years ago to that first summer when I went to a migrant labor camp and I saw those deplorable conditions. I also saw, saw smiling faces. I saw families. I saw people struggling through the most difficult of circumstances, doing the hardest work for the lowest of pay. And that's who I think about when I get discouraged, those faces, those people that I've met through my life. You know, a lot of people in this country are familiar with the expression, si se puede. Yes, we can. We can do it but they attribute it to Barack Obama when he was, pre President Obama, when he was running his first campaign. He would end his rallies with Si Supuerte. Well, that phrase was from Cesar Chavez, and it was about farm workers, and it was about the power of people and the power of organizing. And the way you persevere is you know that change is possible, we can do it, but if we stop fighting, then we're giving up and I'm never going to give up. You know, um, both of you are doing extraordinarily important work um, and your, your focus on um, is not about 
the two of you, it's on the workers who are now for years after years after years not being given the same rights that other people working in the United States has. So I, I thank both of you for coming and speaking so beautifully at times and strongly about these issues. And thank you uh, for having us, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And I, and I hope uh, that Bill will, in one way or the other, come to pass either very soon or in January. You have been listening to Change Agents at 89.9 on your FM radio or on the World Wide Web. I'm Steve Wessler, your host of Change Agents. My guests have been Tom Harnett and Mike Ware. Both have worked for many years on trying to secure rights for farm workers. Tom now is in the state legislature. Mike works at Pine Tree Legal Services. They both continue to advocate for fairness for farm workers. Thank you both for being here and for the work that you've done. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for the chance to talk. Take care.